Welcome to episode three. I'm Andy Clark, and the assumption we're holding up to the light this time around is this one. Scientifically proven knowledge has the greatest value for improving food and nutrition security. And of course, as this is the Dangerous Assumptions podcast, we will be asking if the assumption is dangerous or not. The assumptions we examine each time are the ones guiding research, policy and practice on food and nutrition security. In tackling this episode's question, we'll highlight how different types of knowledge, scientific knowledge or knowledge from local farmers and formal and informal knowledge, for example, are of value or arguably even indispensable when trying to find the most suitable and effective solutions to the global challenge of achieving food and nutrition security for all. The different types of knowledge are commonly linked to different knowledge holders, for example, Western and Southern academics and researchers, private sector research and development, policymakers, farmers, indigenous people, women and men, elders and youths. In conventional research for policy development, academic knowledge is privileged over other forms of knowledge. But is this right? And what are the risks of attributing more value to one form of knowledge over the other? These are the questions we're addressing this time in the podcast. The podcast itself is based on information from 75 research projects carried out in 27 low- and middle-income countries, projects which reveal the complexity of contemporary development issues. First stop this time is Zambia. Old men sit in rocking chairs in a Zambian village and sway back and forth, surveying the day as it unfolds. But who'd have thought that whilst they sway, they're actually performing a vital step in the production of an indigenous food? Um, these uh, old men would sit under a tree and uh, they'll be, uh, well, they sit in a rocking chair, but they, they would uh, be shaking this uh, container, moving it back and forth so, and during the process then they would be singing a song uh, and they would shake the product for anything from around 10 10 to 20 minutes and uh, take a break and uh, do it uh, several times in a day so essentially what that uh, uh, does to the product was that um, it gave it a churning effect my name's uh, Himonga Bernard Monga. I am um, a lecturer at the University of Zambia in the Department of uh, Food Science and uh, Nutrition. The importance of the rocking chair old men was an eye-opener for scientists in Wageningen and it highlights the importance of community knowledge. It was something they would never have thought of in the lab. The insight came as part of the research project into indigenous fermented foods run by Professor Munger. As he explains, fermentation is an age-old preservation process. Fermentation is one of the oldest food preservation methods, which is also relatively um, affordable. And I think over the years, some traditional recipes from some of the commercially known Brands of uh, fermented foodstuffs have derived their origin from uh, traditional recipes. I think in, in, in Western cuisine we can point to several um, examples such as yogurt, cheese, uh, wine. Similarly, um, in Africa we also have different traditional fermented foods, but these have not been developed to 
the commercial standards as the ones that are found in uh, certain um, western or eastern parts of um, of the world so in this particular project the focus was how can these uh, contribute to nutritional security so we focused uh, basically one one dairy product which was um, which is mavisi and the other one was munkoyo which is a cereal based product mavisi is a traditionally fermented milk drink and munkoyo is a cereal based product made mainly from maize meal boiled in water until it thickens and makes a porridge then the munkoyo root is added and the fermentation starts so the project set out to see which steps would be necessary to standardize these indigenous products and local knowledge was key then we decided to interrogate the um, locally available knowledge to be able to see how it would add value to our scientific questions the production process and storage information for the local products was not well documented and the research project set out about changing this when it came to mabisi the researchers discovered widespread regional variations seven types of the product were discovered the local knowledge meant researchers were able to pinpoint variations in production which enabled them to set up experiments in the lab so this was uh, very key um because already from just the description of the production process we were now able to point at variations in the process of production for the different types hence the names and going by uh, those differences we now could formulate experiments that would uh, either standardize a particular process or a process condition in terms of for example temperature because based on practice and seasonality they did different things for example most of the uh, fermentation for mavis is done uh, indoors in pretty cooler places but then the uh, room temperature fluctuates during the year so it's much cooler and slower the fermentation is slower during the um, winter months of june july but it's uh, very fast to only about 24 hours in the hotter months of september and october so to set up experiments uh, on that you had to have this kind of knowledge to be able to uh, decide what sort of temperature you would use to be able to try to mimic the uh, production in a in a standard manner according to professor munga the contribution of local knowledge is essential and should not be underestimated this knowledge was uh, very valuable also in explaining uh, some of the results uh, of certain experiments that we got but also more so being able to say that if hypothetically or if we want to standardize this production what process conditions or what process practices should we put in place so to be able to do that it was based on this uh, local knowledge which we validated by uh, um, doing uh, well designed scientifically based experiments which can also be uh, accepted scientifically as being sound so it was very um, useful knowledge but does this local knowledge get enough attention in research projects in his view a tricky question i in my view i think that 
if we were to look at it purely from uh, a food science or in, in trying to improve a particular food, maybe not. It's probably maybe not receiving as much uh, attention. But uh, maybe the people who are looking at food consumption and things like that, there's probably a bit of work which is going on, but I think that there's more that can still be done. Professor Munger says that too often local knowledge is taken for granted, and there's a view that it's not something that needs formal investigation or improvement. But this is a mistake, he says. Especially when it comes to food and nutrition security, he says there's so much more to be learned by unpacking local knowledge. Nowadays, as people are becoming more conscious and uh, with nutrition and nutrition security, as well as development of local products, people are looking back to say, how nutritious are these foods? So, so now that brings into context the why the research focus on indigenous knowledge on these products needs to be enhanced. For example, there are others who either consume uh, insects, others as a protein source, others consume uh, mice, the rodents or mice. But that's already a potentially big source of uh, protein for some of the households, and this practice is common in the eastern part of the um, of the country where I was last week. So we're also trying to see if we can do what we have done with Marisi to, under, to understand uh, other foods. There's still plenty to be done. Still plenty to do then. So what does Professor Munga make of our assumption? Scientifically proven knowledge has the greatest value for improving food and nutrition security. Is this assumption in his view dangerous or not? Um, I think it's overstated when you say it has the greatest value for uh, improving the uh, food and nutritional security. I think it um, can contribute to the improvement of these products. My take on how it is stated, it appears that this pretty much discounts the local knowledge that is already there on certain products that are available in uh, communities and households that also relate to uh, food and nutrition security. From Zambia, we head to Benin. Uh, My name is uh, Jijoho Joseph Mwiga. I am professor of food science and technology at the University of uh, Abumi Kalavi. Formerly, I was dean of the faculty of uh, agricultural science and head of the laboratory of uh, food science. In the frame of uh, IRF program, I have been the coordinator of both INFLOW and DAPIS project. INFLOW is the acronym of the project Infant Food from Local Resources as a pathway to a better food and nutrition security in Benin. It's this infant food project we'll take a look at. So, what was the idea behind it? Uh, the Infant Food Project aimed at developing and certifying new infant food based on local food research. As you know, in Benin, child malnutrition is a public health problem with a prevalence of uh, chronic malnutrition in children under five years old, up to 32%. 
Unlike the practice of breastfeeding young children who have been the subject of various initiatives, little attention has been paid to complementary feeding practice in Benin. Also inspiring the project was the fact that many of the weaning foods available in shops in Benin were low-quality cereal-based weaning foods, which resulted in infant malnutrition and stunting. So how was the local knowledge taken on board in this project? Uh, including local community was mandatory to achieve the objective of the project. As such, indigenous uh, community has been uh, the target group for the collection of information on the complementary feeding practice, the traditional complementary feeding practice in the country. They are the, the one who can give us information on these local foods. Through an extensive dialogue, the project then compiled a database with 347 plant and animal food resources from the eight agroecological zones of Benin. Lab tests were conducted by scientists involved in the project to establish the nutritional value of these resources and information in the database also included their seasonal availability and varying ways of inclusion into local diets. The research output was made available for practitioners in 12 nutritional maps for Benin, indicating which are the food resources that offer these nutrients and where they can be found. It was the first time that such maps were developed in West Africa. And we got very good results, meaning that using the local resources, we can develop infant food which can be used to feed the children in the locality, in different agroecological locality. When we go to a region, we use the, the infant food of the region. The focus in each region was, of course, on the locally available protein like uh, maize, the old soya, baobab pulp, but we use also small dry fishes. We use peanuts. And you see, you know, peanuts, soya, all these products are really rich in protein, which are deficient in uh, traditional uh, food for children. Including local knowledge in research projects is nothing new for the professor. He's been doing it for more than 30 years. What was new this time around, though, was a close relationship with business. The coordinator was the driver of the, this research because she was, the, she was interested to get an immediately applicable formula for her business. In the end, the project came up with four formulas for the infant food. One has been developed into a commercial product, Fari 40, and the other three have been openly distributed, which means poor households in rural areas can produce them. This private-public partnership was a deliberate choice to ensure the research findings were widely adopted, says the professor. In developing country, it is not easy to have the result of the research adopted, to have the result of the research uptaken by the private sector, because they are not all the time involved in the project. They see the results, but they are not prepared to adopt the result, to adopt the technology. In the frame of this project, the advantage to involve the private sector is that from the beginning, he can give us the requirement to have the result of the project 
adopted. The long-term impact on food and nutrition security in Benin remains to be seen, but for the professor, the goal is clear, and he says the project has inspired other projects too. By doing this one, there are many, many other initiatives of developing infant formula because people know now that this is a problem for the country. And when it comes to our assumption this time around, what's the professor's view? Dangerous or not? Uh, no, not dangerous. My point is that for me, who am educated in the African culture, which includes many rules of life in society, prohibition, inexplainable taboo, only scientifically proven knowledge can free us from the fear of doing this or not doing that. From that point of view, I think there is no conflict between tradition and science. We're leaving Africa now and heading for Brazil to look at the importance of local knowledge in a pork project there. Yeah, in only a few words, like the, the main goal of the project was to check whether we could uh, replace part of the soy being like a standard diet that we have here in Brazil today by some co-products, by some alternative diets. And then the major thing that we used was a macauba, which is a comes from a palm tree. So then would be a kind of a byproduct like from oil production. So my name is Marcos Lopes. I work in Brazil, like for Topics Northing. So I have been working for Topics Northing, a breeding company, like a pig breeding company for over 10 years. The goal of the project was to make producers less dependent on soybean feeds, as these are vulnerable to big price variations depending on demands and a fluctuating exchange rate. One of the main findings of the project was that 15% of the pig feed could be replaced with the macuba thus significantly reducing costs for the breeders. Marcos Lopez says local knowledge played a key role. I think local knowledge is crucial because you need to understand the market where you are. Because if you try to, to bring some kind of ready-to-use solutions, like for example from the Netherlands or from other countries directly to, to Brazil, or if you go to other countries in South America or in Africa. So it might not reflect really the reality. So you need to understand like how your farmers, they think, and how the market is organized to try to come with solutions. Because sometimes the solution can be perfect, but if the, the clients, they don't see it as a good solution, they're just not going to follow it. The project worked with both big companies and smaller scale breeders. A partnership with a local university was crucial in ensuring a flow of information from regional small scale breeders. The emphasis on local knowledge gathering changed the course of the project. The, the first idea was that we could really come over here and then have this project also together with these big companies. And then we, at the end we realized that we cannot really do it. Because, for example, the, the big companies, they already have, so they need to have like a big uh, storage of the material they're going to feed the pigs. And if you think about these alternative diets, so this is really seasonal. And then it varies a lot, like the quality, like from one season to another. So then they cannot really have a kind of a prediction of what they're going to have. And this is not, not going to work like for them because they need something more stable. 
So then we realized in the project that if you want to work with these alternative diets, we have to focus more on the smaller producers than trying to go to bigger producers. In general, Marcos Lopez emphasizes that a combination of a deep understanding of local conditions and knowledge is vital when it comes to successful pork production. When it comes to introducing the right pigs to Brazil, for example, it's essential that this is taken into account. So, but what we do today to try to really make use of local information is to collect information on all countries that we work, and then we send all this information to one central database that is located in Holland, and then we are going to estimate the breeding values, which is the ones that we are going to use for making the selection. So then at the end, like using this local information inside the whole genetic evaluation, we are trying to really uh, to make use of the uh, of try to answer like the local questions. So then making it specifically tailor-made like a solutions is complicated, but if you use information as we do, like from all different countries where we work, so we can provide some genetics, some lines that is going to be producing well in all different kind of environments. Local conditions should never be underestimated, according to the Brazilian researcher. Okay, so it's time to hear what he thinks of our assumption. Scientifically proven knowledge has the greatest value for improving food and nutrition security. Marcos, dangerous or not? No, I don't think it's a dangerous assumption because especially, like I think about scientific, so that's what we need. We need science. So, because if you don't have science, like to prove that something is good or not, so then you're always going to be trying to draw conclusions without like having proper tools for that. And especially in the context of today that we have, for example, a, pan- a pandemic like situation with the COVID-19. So that we have so many people talking lots of nonsense, not based on science, that we cannot prove it. So then we really realize that we need science. So then I think in terms of food and nutrition security, science like and scientifically proven knowledge has the greatest value for sure. And for the last leg of our podcast today, we head back to Zambia. This time to get a policymaker perspective on taking an inclusive approach to utilizing knowledge in research projects. What are the challenges, for example, on introducing standards for indigenous foods and which information should be included? Well, um, my name is uh, Anton Mnyenyembe. I've been working for Zambia Bureau of Standards for 12 years now. My first part of my work at ZABS was uh, developing standards where I think I spent about uh, 10 years in the standards development. We go back to the example of the fermented foods, Mabasi and Munkoyo. We heard about this at the beginning of the podcast. When it comes to tackling food and nutrition security issues, a key component is to push to try and standardize indigenous products so they can be more widely and safely utilized. But this is challenging. Uh, the key challenges that we have or that we have faced in the past when it comes to introducing standards for indigenous foods is the lack or inadequate information. There is limited information on which we can base some technical decisions. For example, some time back we were trying to develop a standard for Munkoyo. We reached a point where there was no information about 
the root, there is a root which is added to this particular uh, beverage. There are some types which are poisonous, okay? So people go to harvest those roots in the bush and bring them uh, to the market and maybe sell them or use them for, 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 for fermenting this uh, drink, okay? But there is another variant which is very poisonous and they are very similar. So it, it needs a, an, an expert opinion to determine which one is uh, not just expert opinion as in terms of uh, uh, academic qualification, but experienced with the use of these roots. We reached a dead end because we are not able to determine which one is poisonous and which one was uh, good for use and we didn't want to use uh, subjective information. It's not easy to get the necessary information according to the policymaker. It's not documented. It's passed on from generation to generation in our culture. We don't have that pool of expertise to objectively uh, work with to develop these uh, standards. This means that introducing standards is not straightforward, and especially when trying to introduce international standards, there needs to be a level-headed approach, according to the Zambia Bureau of Standards. You need to take into account the, expert, the local expertise. You need to take into account the technology that exists locally. Is it able to address the things that the standard brings, or is it able to meet the, the needs of, of implementing those standards because it's not worthwhile to bring a standard that will just exist in space. You need to have a standard that you are going to implement at the local level. So we need that balance between the specifications that we put in the standards or the requirements that we put in the standards and the technology that is available at the moment to meet the expectations of those standards. So technically I meant that when you are adopting the standards, when you are harmonizing standards, you need to take into account, you need to balance between the technology and the, the specifications that you need to put in the standards so that at the end of the day you are able to address the needs of the industry and the consumers. Tino Kalikiti is a colleague of Anthony's at the Zambia Bureau of Standards. He too stresses the need for a practical approach, taking into account local knowledge and capacity. The critical questions we ask is, is this workable locally? Is the content going to be applicable locally? Is the content going to work locally? So there is uh, that consideration and we do consider that when we are doing our standards and developing standards uh, for the nation. But is enough attention paid to knowledge from the local context in the journey to find scientific proof on the way to standardisation? Yes, there is. I would, uh, I would say there is. There's, uh, there's a lot of engagement. Even the people that are doing uh, scientific research, uh, the people from the academia and uh, research institutions do engage these uh, people a lot. We do, into, we do go into these uh, rural areas and just find out what they are doing and appreciate what they've been doing. So there is a lot of uh, appreciation for that knowledge, yes. So where do the policymakers from the Zambian Bureau of Standards stand on our assumption this time around? Here's Tino again. Uh, in my view, it's, it's not a dangerous assumption. I think the assumption is, uh, is okay. Over the years, scientifically proven uh, knowledge has been, uh, has been used not only in the food sector, but in uh, other sectors around the world. And it's this uh, scientific knowledge, proven scientific knowledge, which has uh, helped us uh, develop a lot of things across the globe, uh, develop a lot of things in the pharmaceutical industry, in the food industry. So... For me, it's, uh, it's not a dangerous assumption. And here's Anthony's take on our assumption. And uh, 
it's not a dangerous assumption from the standardization point of view. Because as my colleague referred to, you know, we base our standards on science, okay? If we are talking about food safety, it is a science. So how can it be a dangerous assumption? You know, we, we know that standards uh, contribute to food security. How does this contribute to food security? Is, you know, the standards provide a common language of trade. They facilitate trade. And by facilitating trade, they help trans uh, move products from points of production to points of consumption. And sometimes points of consumption can be across borders. And how are the products going to be accepted? Is it through standards? So if we, standards are not there, it becomes a challenge for people to export to trade. So we are going to solve food security by you, the use of standards because we are able to provide food from one end to the other and by facilitating trade. So it's a very good assumption to say scientifically proven knowledge has the greatest value for improving food uh, and the nutritional security. So a very clear view from the Zambian Bureau of Standards on the assumption. Scientifically proven knowledge certainly has the greatest value for improving food and nutrition security in their view. The view was echoed by Marcos Lopez of the Pork Project in Brazil, who did however stress the importance of understanding the local conditions of small-scale pork farmers to introduce the right feed or breeds. Professor Hunhuygen in Benin stressed too how essential science is in moving forward food and nutrition security in a country faced with high levels of child malnutrition. However, the professor equally stressed that the knowledge of local communities about indigenous food resources in their areas was vital to the success of the research project. Women and men from local communities across Benin were therefore included in the project and consulted on their indigenous knowledge from the very start. Of our speakers this time around, Professor Himunga from the Fermented Foods Project in Zambia was the most outspoken, saying solutions should not be imposed from outside and that science projects have a lot to gain from unpacking local knowledge. In his view, it remains a balancing act in ensuring that the voices of all knowledge holders are heard to devise solutions for better food and nutrition security. One question does arise when local knowledge becomes standardised and translated into market products. Who is the owner of the knowledge? The recipe for the infant weaning food, for example. In Benin, a commercial party was involved from the start, with a clear agreement that some results would be used to develop a product for market, whilst the research at the same time developed different recipes for nutritious weaning foods made from local resources that would be distributed free of charge to poor communities in rural areas across the country. If we agree that different types of knowledge are important for achieving innovations and impact, this throws up the question of the power of the knowledge holders. How can the knowledge of local communities as a resource be protected? But for now, that's a question for another time. You've been listening to the Dangerous Assumptions podcast, a podcast funded by WATRO, the Science for Global Development division of the Dutch Research Council. My name is Andy Clark and I've been producing the podcast together with Ellen Lammers and Daniela De Winter from DBM Research. It would be great if you can share the podcast in your network as we'd love to generate discussion. 
You can learn more about the Food and Business Research Programme at nwo.nl forward slash food and business. nwo.nl forward slash food and business. If you want to react to this podcast, then send a message to gcp at nwo.nl. gcp at nwo.nl. From me, Andy Clark, thanks for listening.